This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to launching new startups, my guest has created quite a few next chapters for himself, including being a competitive ballroom dancer. He's written a book called The Career Toolkit, in which he says are all the mistakes that he made along the way to help you avoid making them. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and joining me today is Mark Hirschberg. Welcome, Mark. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here today. If there was ever a time in the world when people are perhaps questioning if they're even in the right career, it might be now. The pandemic has forced many to reassess, reevaluate, and in some cases even make the decision that maybe they need to be doing something else. But many feel that it's either been too long since they've been on the market, so to speak, that even the idea of trying to look for a new job can be daunting. What is in your book, The Career Toolkit, that will help people take that next step? That begins with chapter one, career planning. And all of us, no matter where we are in our career, can think about where we're trying to go and how to get there. If you think about any project you've ever done at work, you would never say to your boss, I know we're going to do this for the next six months, but let's just wing it. Let's not bother making a plan. <laughs> let's just see where we wind up. And yet we do this all the time for our career, which of course lasts longer than six months. So the process, the key thing, people think plans are hard to do, and they are. But as Eisenhower said, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And it's really that act of planning in which we prepare and think about things that helps us to figure out where we want to go. So no matter where you are in your career, think about where you're trying to go, and then you can backtrack to create a plan to get there. Mm. I am always telling people that no matter where you are in your career, no matter how successful you are, no matter how happy you are, no matter how much money you may be making, I think today we all need to be thinking about, well, what might that next chapter be, even if you're happy where you are? Because people are not staying in careers for 20, 30 years like we used to many years ago. So I think this book is so timely on so many levels. You also say that the tools that you teach in this book are not taught in school, and yet everyone is expected to excel in them. Give us an example of some of the unwritten rules, as you call them, that are not taught in school. Well, let's take networking. We have all heard time and again, your network is so important. You need to have a good network. Has anyone ever sat you down and said, Here is how to network. Mm -hmm. It's one of these skills that we assume people learn by osmosis. Mm. Other skills like learning to manage your manager. Negotiations, that's a skill that has direct revenue impact, direct financial impact to all of us, and yet people have had zero training yet. So all these skills, we know about them, we use them, they're right in front of our face, Mm -hmm. but we've never had any formal training in them. If they're so important to one's career, and I completely agree with you on all of those topics, Why are they not taught? That's what I want to know. Why not? It has to do with the history of the university system. The universities are run by professors, and they're wonderful people. I work with them all the time. (laughs) But professors are deep experts in an area. So when you think about the accounting department, it's run by professors who have PhDs in accounting. 
And when you get an accounting degree, those professors are saying, we have now decided you have learned enough, you've taken enough hours, sat through enough classes, we are designating you as having this level of knowledge in accounting, known as a bachelor's or master's or ultimately PhD. We are credentialing your knowledge of the field. That is all they are doing. They're mm. not saying you're a great leader, or a great team player, or a good communicator. And that knowledge is necessary, but not sufficient to be successful in your career. Mm. You are an MIT trained engineer, and you've been teaching at MIT now for the past 20 years. And the book is really something that stemmed from a program that you developed for MIT. How did that all come about? Going back a little over 20 years, when I was hiring people, I had realized the lack of these skills in myself and set out to develop them. And then when I began to hire others, I could ask a technical question. I'd ask an engineering question. I'd get an engineering answer. But then I would ask someone in an interview, what makes someone a good teammate? What are some of the communication challenges you might face in this type of job? And I'd get blank stares because, of course, we haven't taught this to folks. So I realized it was a widespread problem. I couldn't hire for these skills, so I started to develop the skills. And I created a training program within my organization. Around the same time, shortly after that, MIT had been getting feedback from corporations saying, your students, obviously, they're fantastic, (laughs) but we wish they had these other skills. We are looking for leaders, people with good negotiation skills, strong communicators, people who understand the environment in which they work. We can't find it. And this feedback, it wasn't unique to MIT. Similar feedback's been given to all the different universities. And this applies not just to people graduating college, but all levels. So MIT wanted to address this by creating a new program. I was fortunate to hear about it and said, you know, I've been addressing some of this on my own. Happy to share my work with you. They said, yes, please come. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) And then they asked me to stay and help teach it. Oh, wow. You mentioned a moment ago that, yes, the initial audience was the college students that you created this program for. But your book really is for everyone and anyone. So take me through someone who may have been in their career or about to change careers or are looking to take to some next chapter. How is your book going to help them? You can use it in a couple different ways. If you're trying to figure out where to go next or you know where you want to go but not how to get there, start with chapter one career planning, how to create those next steps to get you where you want to go. When you're in the job, learning the skills in chapter two, working effectively, learning how to understand the value you add, the ecosystem in which you work, corporate politics, managing your manager. These are skills that if you do them right, will make you much more effective. If you do them wrong, you're going to trip yourself up in your jobs and slow down your progress. There are chapters on leadership and management, and these are not skills just for people with these high-level titles. They're the practical skills we can use every day from our first day out of school to our last day before retirement. Leadership skills aren't just for people with senior titles. Mm. And then finally, there are the skills such as networking, negotiations, communications, and ethics. And these are the skills that we use day in, day out as we interact with other people. But again, they've never really been taught to us. So you can jump into the book and say, I want to go right to learn how to negotiate better or right to learn how to build my network. Or you can start from the front about your whole career planning and go through front to back. What's the biggest mistake you made? 
for me, I was definitely tripped up in corporate politics. Mm. Early on, I lost political battles. I didn't even know I was fighting. And I realized <laughs> I had to get better at that. Wow. And that's a minefield in and of itself, I think, for most people. It really is a challenge. And unfortunately, so many people say, you know, I, I don't like politics. I don't want to deal with it. Now, I don't like politics either. But politics, it's kind of like gravity. You can pretend it doesn't exist, but it's going to impact you just the same. So you're better off learning how to work within a world in which it exists. Let's talk about your own career path for a moment. Growing up, I know you were into math and science. You quoted Star Trek. You went to chess camp. What was your career plan? Early on, I got interested in physics when I was nine. And so I knew I wanted to be a physicist. (laughs) I also got interested in computers in high school. So I said, okay, I'm going to double major in both of those. And I was interested in politics. So I minored in political science, thinking I'd go into politics. Along the way, a few things happened. I got turned off by politics. (laughs) And I also learned in physics, I want to be a theoretical physicist. And my advisor politely said to me, Well, the problem with theoretical physics, there's about 100 people who lead the field and everyone else follows. And that was his way of saying, you ain't one of the top 100. (laughs) Nicely put, right? Politically correct. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I took the hint. And really, as I think about what interests me now, I didn't understand this back then, the path of a physicist, I certainly find the information really fascinating, but the types of challenges and how I would be spending my day would not have been that interesting for me. Uh. Because when I began as a software engineer, I had some interesting technical challenges, but I found I liked the more complicated people and management challenges. So early in my career, I set myself on a path moving towards management. So how do you then go into tracking terrorists on the dark web from all of that? Sure, that that does sound a bit like a left turn. (laughs) Well, maybe a little, but not quite. (laughs) My graduate work at MIT was in cybersecurity. So I learned how to create that little lock that you see in your browser where you say, okay, I can put in my credit card now. So we know how to protect information and how to uncover information because you learn both sides, attack and defense. And I've been in and out of cybersecurity throughout my career. A few years ago, I got connected to a company working in the cybersecurity space particularly the dark web. Now, the dark web, everyone asks about this. That's just a part of the web that isn't as visible to search engines like Google and and other places. They use different technologies. It's not that the dark web is bad, but the analogy I use, dark alleys aren't bad, but if you're going to do something bad, do it in the dark alley (laughs) and not in the middle of the well-lit street. (laughs) So all the bad guys hang out on the dark web And we went there to try and figure out who are these people and what are they doing and basically intelligence gathering. Mm -hmm. And so we, we got all this intelligence and we would sell it to our clients who were either various government agencies or corporate security teams, physical and cyber, who wanted to understand what's coming at them. Did that finally then lead to the startups that you began and what were, what fields were they in? I've been doing startups since my day out of MIT, pretty much. Wow. Interestingly, it wasn't planned. I knew I didn't want to work on Wall Street. I didn't want to work in big tech, which back then was Microsoft and IBM. I didn't want to work in consulting. Those were the the big three areas Mm -hmm. that recruited for MIT. 
So that basically left small companies and startups. And I defaulted to that, but then discovered I really enjoyed it. I liked that environment. For some people, big companies are better. For other startups are better. And for me, it was that startup environment. So I've met companies from three to 300,000 people in all sorts of different fields, created new languages, labor marketplaces, online advertising, digital media, cybersecurity, all sorts of different areas. Wow. And somewhere in the middle of all of these various career chapters, you found time to take up ballroom dancing. And anyone who knows me well knows that I want to learn desperately how to ballroom dance. And you competed for seven years. How did you get into that? You're speaking of left turns. That feels like a left turn. <laughs> MIT has one of the oldest and largest ballroom dance teams in the country. And in fact, we were arguably number one. We produced a couple national champions. So I started taking some ballroom classes and I then began dating a woman, got her into ballroom. She decided that she wanted to compete in ballroom, which apparently meant I decided I wanted to compete <laughs> of in course, ballroom. Of course. <laughs> and so we started competing and it was one of the best things I've ever done. It was great exercise, great friends, a lot of fun. It even helped me professionally. It really helped my public speaking. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how did it affect your professional life and how so? And how can you connect dancing with public speaking? Because as someone who teaches people how to speak effectively in public, I'm curious myself how you connected those dots. Well, it helped me in two ways. So on the professional front, it certainly helped develop my network. And when we talk about networking, it's so important to develop a diverse network. I know lots and lots of engineers because I work in the field. I went to MIT. When you engage in another activity, such as ballroom dancing or join, for example, your religious community, you're going to meet people in all sorts of different fields. And so it's a great way to add in some diversity. I have friends from all different backgrounds who I know through ballroom. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to public speaking, for many of us, what holds us back in public speaking is fear. It's that fear of, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to trip. I forgot to zip up my pants. You know, whatever <laughs> it is, you have these fears in the back of your head. Now, when you're doing ballroom dancing, particularly competitive ballroom dancing, you're on the dance floor. Everyone's watching you. You are quite literally being judged by people and you will screw up mm. multiple times, many, mm. many, many times. <laughs> But you learn, okay, screw it up. Yep, that competition wasn't our best, but I got through it. No one laughed at me. No one said, you're, you're a fool. In fact, one thing I love about ballroom, if a couple ever does stumble or trip on the floor, it happens once in a blue moon. When that couple gets back up, the entire audience applauds for them and everyone says, yeah, we're behind you, keep going. Mm -hmm. And so when you screwed up, but keep going and you realize it's not the end of the world, that gives you the confidence you need for public speaking that, yeah, it's okay. I don't have to worry about that. And you can focus on the delivery of your message. Oh, such great advice. Are you still dancing, by the way? I am dancing socially. I don't compete anymore. In fact, going out dancing was one of the very last things I did right before lockdown began a year ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we can get back to that eventually, and I'm going to start taking my lessons, too. Before we get off the dancing topic, I have to ask, what's your favorite dance? American Foxtrot, hands down, and that's what Fred Astaire was known for. Well, I can't wait. Do you have a video? You'll have to send it to me. <laughs>
Mark, this show is all about people hearing other people's stories to learn and see that my guests can make changes in their life. They can follow their passions that we all can. How have all these various chapters that we've just talked about translated into you living your best life? It is definitely a tapestry that comes together from all the different threads. And it's a combination of understanding what is important to me, what I value. I even talk about in the book, I know ballroom dancers who said they want jobs that give them the flexibility to spend time ballroom dancing. Hmm. That mattered much more to them than money or a certain title. So it's recognizing what's important to you, finding the jobs that fit in and creating that path to get there along the way, developing these skills, whether it's from formal training or doing fun activities like ballroom dancing that have come together in my case to make me effective and allow me to achieve the career success that I have. Mm, Wonderfully said. If you would like to learn more about Mark and get his book, just go to thecareertoolkitbook.com. I'm going to repeat that. Thecareertoolkitbook, all one word, dot com. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I certainly wish you continued success. And thank you for helping all of us with moving our careers and our lives forward at the same time. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you to your audience for giving me some of your time. And thank you to my audience as well. I love hearing from you. So please subscribe, write a review, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud fast twitch media can take you there be your best digital self check out fast twitch media dot space